0: Esther chapter 3 as we continue our Wednesday night series through the book of Esther where we are witnessing God's providence at work and understanding how God was at work in Persia back then on behalf of the house of Judah should bring us comfort to know that God is still in complete control today. Things may not look so promising at the moment, but rest assured, God is at work, and He will work all things together for His purposes and His glory. Let's begin tonight in chapter 3 by reading verses 1 through 10 again this week. After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, And advanced him, and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. Then the king's servants, which were in the king's gate, said unto Mordecai, Why transgressest thou the king's commandment? Now it came to pass, when they spake daily unto him, and he hearkened not unto them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matter would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. And he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had showed him the people of Mordecai. Wherefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. And let's stop there. That's as far as we'll get tonight. Our first week in this chapter, we were introduced to Haman the Agagite. I'm of the opinion this means that he was a descendant of the kingly line of Agag from among the Amalekites, which God had commanded King Saul to destroy utterly, but he failed. And as we covered, it now looks like a descendant of Agag and the descendant of King Saul and Mordecai are now coming head to head. And Mordecai is being forced to be faced with an enemy that frankly should have never been born. And it's a humbling thought for us to take heed how we live our life in obedience to God, knowing that what we do can impact future generations, both good and bad the victories that Christ gives you today through your obedience to God's commands can help your posterity tomorrow. But the areas where you decide to compromise and not face that battle and get that victory, choosing to disobey God can lead to bad consequences for your posterity. Last week, we covered verses one through four, where we saw Haman promoted and Mordecai refuses to bow and reverence Haman. Remember, this likely, this command to bow in of itself wasn't a bad thing, but when it adds uh, the reverence part of it, it likely means to get into the areas of worship, uh, adoration, and that Mordecai here was actually being commanded. To not just recognize civil authority, but to recognize Haman as a godlike figure. And we know God did forbid that. And there are several reasons we could speculate as to why Mordecai refused to bow, but nothing really is ever said dogmatically. The only reason ever given to us is that he was a Jew. This was the reason he gave the other king's servants as to why he refused to obey the king's command. And so it would appear that Mordecai's refusal to bow was probably religious in nature, being a Jew, even though he's living outside of the will of God. And if it is true that his refusal was religious, then as we covered last week, what took Mordecai so long to reveal his identity and to admit where he was from and who he was? And so the emphasis was we aren't to pick and choose when we stand for God. It really makes no sense to occasionally make a stand for God but never live for God. And we ought to be consistent. Two ideologies here in the book of Esther are now coming to a head. Mordecai could not be a faithful Jew and a compliant Persian citizen at the same time. Not with this command. And we can see the the clouds building in America. The day is coming where our Christianity will chide with whether or not we'll be compliant American citizens. And we have to choose whether we will stand as Christians or if we will compromise and hide and stand in the shadows. Our nation is continuing to legislate sin. So will you stand firm for God and His word? Sometimes we are left with no choice but to transgress the king's commandment, which is what we see here. But as the the apostles said in Acts, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And then they'll go on to say in the next chapter of Acts, we ought to obey God rather than men. These are certainly interesting days in which we live. I would say exciting, but they're interesting. Now, as we continue this account tonight, we pick back up in verse 5. And when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. Now, it appears as we read this account that Mordecai did not at first recognize Mordecai refusing to bow, but that he had to be told that he was not bowing. And now he's paying attention to see whether this was true. And in verse 5, Haman realizes Mordecai is refusing to bow and reverence him. And here we begin to get a picture of Haman's character. And what we notice right away is he is a very proud man. Proverbs 13.10 tells us only by pride cometh contention. And in his pride he now has a contention with Mordecai. And this goes far beyond an aggravation of someone not obeying a direct order in a chain of command. If this was simply a matter of protocol, a humble man could have calmly and privately addressed Mordecai and rebuked him for disobeying the king's command. From a chain of command perspective, Haman is actually correct to expect Mordecai to obey. That is the king's command. But Haman was not right to expect that he was worthy of worship. This is deep-seated pride. Haman genuinely felt like he was worthy of the adoration of others. And we know Haman's attitude was he believed he deserved reverence because one man's disobedience makes his blood boil. And he becomes enraged in his spirit. The end of verse 5 tells us, Then Haman was full of wrath. And we're seeing that wrath is a problem in the Persian Empire. Wrath has showed up so far in the three opening chapters. Chapter 1 tells us how the king was very wroth and his anger burned within him when Vashti refused his command to appear before him and the drunken men. So in his wrath, he has her deposed. Divorces her. She can no longer be in his presence ever. If Ahasuerus is Xerxes of secular history, which I contended back then, then it was his wrath that led him to launch a military campaign against Greece because chapter 2 speaks of when the king's wrath was now appeased. And now in chapter 3 we see Haman is acting no different than his king. The king has already demonstrated this is acceptable behavior. That it's okay to be wrathful. And certainly, our actions will speak louder than our words. And as leaders in our homes, the actions of parents will be adopted to some degree in the lives of our children. And so, if you have a child with wrathful anger problems, maybe you have a problem with wrathful anger problems, even if it's just passive. They adopt our actions. And we have to be careful what our actions are teaching those who are under our influence. In our homes, our workplaces, our church. We can tell people all we want, but we must also demonstrate proper behavior. And when we fail, because we do, there's been no perfect parents and there's been no perfect children. When we fail, we get back up, we apologize, we make it right, and we try again. Amen. Amen. So what we see here in our text is that godless people are easily infuriated. I don't just mean those outside of Christ. But even those who claim to be in Christ, when they are not walking with God, are easily infuriated people. And, And I mean in the sense of being vengeful. And you can tell if pride is in your heart if you're easily enraged, full of wrath, ready to take vengeance. How much trouble is stirred up and caused and sometimes irreparable damage simply because we can't control our temper? In our Sunday morning series through Genesis, we are now in chapter 4 and we're considering Cain and Abel. You know what happened there. Cain was very wroth against his brother against God, against the system. (laughs) And so in his anger, he rises up against Abel and he murders his own brother. During the Babylonian captivity, when the three Hebrew men refused to bow to the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, the Bible lets us know that Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury and the form of his visage changed. And by the way, God showed up to Cain and said, why is your countenance fallen? Anger manifests itself in the face. Why does everybody ask me if I'm mad all the time? (laughs) And so the king in his wrath, he commands, hey, let's heat the furnace up seven times more hot than it is. And then let's cast them in. I mean, you talk about an anger problem. Prideful people always overreact when things don't go their way. And in their prideful anger, they end up blowing things way out of proportion. They transform matters into humongous problems and all kind of drama. I pity you if you watch drama television. Just go in the ministry. You won't ever watch another drama show. The end of James 3.5 says, Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. Humble people stay in control. They don't allow their emotions to overcome them. And we can contrast Haman's reaction here to David's. David was being disrespected in 2 Samuel 16. The king is on the run. His own son Absalom is trying to overthrow the kingdom and Establish himself as the ruler. And David comes to Bahurim. And there comes out a man of the house of Saul named Shimei. He's not bowing before the king. He's not reverencing the king. But he's standing over against the king, cursing him and casting stones at him. And, and every pastor needs an Abishai. And he says, one of David's mighty men Let me go over and take off the head of this dog. That's what I'm talking about. No, you sons of Zariah, chill out. But this is what it says. This is how a humble man replied. David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my son which came forth of my bowels seeketh my life. How much more now may this Benjamite do it? Let him alone, let him curse. For the Lord hath bidden him. It may be that the Lord would look on mine affliction and that the Lord will requite me good for his cursing this day. So David, in his humility, he took what could have been a bloody and deadly situation, and he really diffuses wrath by how he chooses to respond. Haman, on the other hand, he's taking a small problem, and he is turning this into a major crisis. And I want you to know, it doesn't have to be these huge situations like I'm I'm citing right now, but prideful anger can be manifested in all kinds of ways. I'll give you a church example because that's what I do. Someone who believes they are more gifted than others, in their pride, feel like they should be used more than another. And in their prideful anger, they'll actually leave a church that God has led them to to seek for a place where they can stand out and be more noticed. I've seen it with preachers, teachers, singers, instrumentalists. Well, I'm not able to show off my talents here like I want, so I'll find somewhere else where they understand what a big deal I am. Someone rightly said... No proud man ever received the respect and regard which he thought was due him. And what ends up happening is a small matter for one person gets blown up into a big issue within a family and a church family. Frustration is now impacting others. Instead of letting patience have her perfect work and allow promotion to come from the Lord, people will seek to kick open a door of opportunity in their pride and anger. And you can apply this to any area of life you want. Your marriage, your children, your church, your work, your sports, your hobbies. I just saw recently where a football coach was killed. Sports, pride, anger. Well, we see this small matter of one man not bowing, and not reverencing another man, is now being blown up in verse 6. Look at this. And he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone. In other words, that wouldn't be enough. For they had showed him the people of Mordecai. Wherefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. So it wasn't enough for Haman to have all the other king's servants bow before him But this one man's refusal was enough for him to unleash all of his fury. And we find Haman wasn't going to be satisfied with simply taking the life of Mordecai. But because he now knows Mordecai is a Jew, he wants the death of all the Jews. The family Bible note states this, A man may be so wicked as to regard his own glory more than he does the lives of his fellow men. When I was in the military, I was blessed to serve as both an enlisted and and as an officer. And when I was enlisted, I had no problem rising when an officer came in the room, saluting, paying proper respects. Now, it was weird when that was happening to me when I became an officer. But if an enlisted man refused to pay me respect, it never crossed my mind that the solution is to wipe out the entire enlisted force. (laughs) That's crazy. For you non-military people, imagine somebody over in Box Elder disrespects you, (laughs) and you're like, that's it, I've had it. I'm going to take out the entire city of Box Elder. (laughs) Problem solved. We are told that Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. And just to be clear, in case you're wondering, this would have included those who were in Jerusalem. Because at this point, you can see in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, they're still under Persian control down there. Some see this hatred toward an entire population as a reference to the hatred that the Amalekites had against the children of Israel. Matthew Henry wrote, Herein appear Haman's intolerable pride, insatiable cruelty, and the ancient antipathy of an Amalekite to the Israel of God. Saul, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, spared Agag, but Mordecai, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, shall find no mercy with this Agagite, whose design is to destroy all the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. And in Psalm 83, verses 1-8, through we read this. Keep not thou silence, O God, hold not thy peace, and be not still, O God. For lo, thine enemies make a tumult. And they that hate thee have have lifted up the head. They have taken crafty counsel against thy people, and consulted against thy hidden ones. They have said, Come and let us cut them off from being a nation that the name of Israel may be no more in remembrance, for they have consulted together with one consent. They are confederate against thee. And then it goes on to list a host of people, and one of those listed is the Amalekites. And and this may be a case of Amalekites hating the children of Israel, but, but I believe this event here, this reaction by Haman, is so over the top that we are meant to see past Just Haman, but understand that there is a darker, more wicked and sinister person at work in the life of Haman. Because this is just so blown out of proportion. And and what what we understand as God's people, that behind the scenes working through Haman is Satan himself. Satan's not all-knowing, but he does know at this point that The Messiah is going to come through the tribe of Judah. That's why he wants to destroy all of the Jews. He's trying to prevent the Messiah's arrival. And this begins all the way back with Cain and Abel. Satan's desire to have Cain killed was in case he was, or Abel killed in case he was the promised seed. Of course, God would go through Seth. And I recently covered in our series in Genesis all the ways Satan attacked this line in the Old Testament. I won't do that again tonight. But he certainly tried to keep Christ from being born. What else can explain the depth of the fury of Haman? He could have just had Mordecai put to death. But no, that's not enough. What else can explain the depth of Herod's fury after Christ was born? Daniel 11.44 says, But tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him, therefore he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many or slay many. Matthew 2.16, Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and all the coast thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. And so here in Esther, Satan tries to eradicate the Jews to prevent the Messiah's arrival. And then Satan tried to kill the Messiah after he arrived by having all those babies killed around the time and location that Christ was born. So on the surface here, it may seem like Haman is just continuing the hatred of the Amalekites against the children of Israel. And on the surface, it may have seemed like Herod was only acting acting alone in the interest of self-preservation. But in both accounts, Satan is at work in the hearts of Haman and Herod. And so in Haman, we find the characteristics of Satan. And I hope these aren't found in us. Haman is prideful. He wants the worship. Isn't that what Satan's problem was? Haman is a murderer. He'll kill anybody he has to. Jesus said Satan was a murderer from the beginning. Haman is furious. He'll kill an entire group of people. He's a deceitful liar. We'll see that more clearly in verse 8. In other words, Haman is of his father, the devil. But here's where I want to bring this to. Haman is only flesh and blood. So the battle here is ultimately against Satan, and therefore, don't miss that this is spiritual in nature. I know God's not mentioned in the book, but it's clear this is a spiritual battle unfolding. Haman is merely the vessel in which the devil's spiritual wickedness is being manifested. And as a result, Haman's going to have to ultimately be destroyed. Let's never forget that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. That would help anybody who has wrathful, vengeful, anger problems. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, Against spiritual wickedness in high places, and as you know, the apostle Paul would go on to write there in Ephesians six thirteen, wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand. And so the Jews in our text get this now: the Jews in our text have a spiritual problem, and therefore, it requires a spiritual answer. Amen. Don't miss that. God's providence is going to overrule Satan and his plans. And God, will see, us so far ahead of Satan that the plans which Satan thinks will bring victory will ultimately bring defeat. See also the life of Christ. As we witness the prevailing wickedness of sin in our land and the emerging hostility against God's people like we see here in Esther, let us not forget that our enemy is not flesh and blood. It might be manifested through the progressive liberal agenda, through wicked politicians and people, but let's remember that Satan and the rulers of darkness are at work in high places. And because of this, the answer in our nation is not more flesh and blood. As God's people, we can even become guilty of presuming if we get this leader in place, this party in power, then all the problems go away. Now, it would be a blessing to see conservatism take over our country. But that isn't the primary answer. We have a spiritual problem, and it requires a spiritual answer. We can't merely replace who is flesh and blood with another person who is flesh and blood. Listen, we had the bright idea as a nation, and whether you agree with the outcome of the election or not, we can talk about that later. But apparently the American people had the bright idea that the person who's best suited to fix the government is somebody who had already served 50 years in the government. That makes no sense. Well, that went over well. (laughs) Flesh and blood. We have a spiritual problem we need to return to God. And if we'll do this, God will then begin to raise up godly leaders. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. God's people need to spend more time in prayer than they do canvassing for their ideal candidate. God's people need to spend more time in His Word than they do in front of Fox News. God's people need to spend more time crying out to God in God's house and crying against the man in the White House. Like our founders, we need an appeal to heaven. And I'm telling you this because don't assume that what is taking place here in Esther can't take place in America today. It's already taking place in other areas of the world where they will kill you if they find out you're a Christian. And that's been happening for centuries. We could never know the death toll the Catholic Church took upon those who did not believe in infant baptism. It is estimated to be in the tens of millions. It can happen here in America. Don't think that our Constitution will always guarantee our rights. There are already those in positions of power who are saying, let's get rid of it and start over. And I'm just saying, we need to get serious as God's people. As Edmund Burke said, all that is necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And we can see the manifestation of spiritual warfare in our nation today, and it is proven by the removal of liberties. God is the giver of liberties. And as we continue to depart more and more from God, we're seeing our liberties more and more erode away. And God has every right to take those away as we step away from Him. We must get busy fighting the good fight of faith. And it begins with prayer. You understand, we're setting up the generations to come to have an even more difficult battle than we're seeing in the generation before us all. And I'll close with this. As individuals, we have a spiritual problem. And it requires a spiritual solution. Jesus is the answer. God made the way to Him through Christ and His willing sacrifice on the cross. We needed the blood of Christ to remove our sin. And He is the only answer to our spiritual problems. You say, what do I need in my marriage, in my home, in my work, in my church? You need Jesus. He's the answer. And He's the only answer to our spiritual problems. So have you accepted Christ as your Savior? Have you placed your faith and trust in Him alone for salvation? And for those of us in Christ, the enemy is after us. He is always plotting against us. I'll read to you again from Ephesians 6. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And listen to this. Praying always. With all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. and Watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And so, we must be ready at all times. There is not a moment when the Christian can drop his guard. We have to be ready. Let's pray.